0: Good morning to those of you here in the room, good morning to those of you who are not in the room. Uh, I had to self-isolate for a couple of weeks, trying to watch church is not a phrase I ever ever really want to say again after this year, trying to be present in uh, the teaching of God's Word, trying to sing at home in your living room. It's just not the same. You understand what you're going through uh, one day. We'll be back together. Um, thank you for trying, for making the effort. Um, if we haven't met, folks, my name's Thomas. I'm part of the eldership team here. here. Um, And if you've been with us any amount of time, uh, you'll know that we're knee-deep into Hebrews. Um, Like Ali mentioned, I have um, been sitting um, in the seat and just loved what we've been reading. It's been so, so challenging, so encouraging, so enriching. I hope it's been the same for you. Being challenged to believe that Jesus is better... Um, and not just with my mind it's easy to agree with something in fact it's, it's, it's really easy to agree with something and then it just stay there but actually believe that Jesus is better in every area of my life with every penny I have to my name with every decision I make in every relationship and every work situation Jesus truly is superior but trying to um to live that way is tough um this this book is this chapter this uh this this letter has been so good in in, in leading us into that place so uh, i hope that's been the same for you as it has been for me um this morning just three verses and they act as a bit of a bridge um a bit of a bridge from what the author has done from the beginning of chapter 3, where this argument has been built, that Jesus is better than Moses, he is, he is the better Moses, he is the better promised land, and that he is, he is where we find true rest. So, bridging that part into this next part, um, reflecting on Jesus being better than Aaron, being better than the priesthood. He is the better priest, the better mediator. And the next five chapters uh, of this letter will tease this out bit by bit. It'll cover how Jesus is from the line of a guy called Melchizedek. Uh, if that's new to you, I'm sorry. I can't go into any more detail on that right now. Um, all you need to know is that he was, he was a, a king and a priest, a priestly king, a kingly priest. Maybe see some parallels there with Jesus. Uh, we find out how Jesus is better than him, superior to him. How Jesus is uh, overseeing a, a better covenant. Um, how Jesus is a better priest and he is a better sacrifice. All of this and more will be covered in the next five chapters, uh, which means that I don't need to lean on everything that the three verses we have today are dealing with. Um, so if I, I could have like a red banner behind my head, the, something I'll say a lot today is we'll deal with that another time. There's a lot we'll deal with another time. Um, there's, it's, a, it's good news that I don't have to get through that all in one go today. Good news for you, definitely. Um, so the, the three verses we have, the big picture of those three verses... It's not like neatly packaged into like three convenient points. I wish it was. It would make my job a lot easier. It's not like three Ps or something. Um, Within these three verses, I think we can see two gospel truths, two gospel realities, and then two encouragements or exhortations that are built off those truths. Uh, They are interrelated and interdependent, so we'll we'll jump backwards and forwards a little bit as we go. Uh, I don't have time for any more introduction because we've got a lot to get through, so let's get stuck in. Uh, Before we do... um, let me pray for us. Let me pray for me, firstly. Um, please pray for me, also. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words, for the truth it contains. Father, may it, uh, uh, may we not leave here today um, without considering deeply the truths of the gospel, the, um, the reality that you lead us into um, the, the truth about who you are and about how we, who we are in light of who you are and what you've done. Holy Spirit, come, teach us. For your son's sake, amen. Okay, uh, verse 14 then. Let's have a look at our first gospel reality. Since then, or uh, because we, have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. So this is our first truth. And the author is is saying, based on everything that we've covered so far, and this is like from the beginning of the letter, of based on on Jesus being the radiance of God's glory, on Jesus being the exact imprint of his nature, uh, being superior to these incredibly powerful angelic hosts, being at the right hand of God the Father right now, um, being better than the Old Testament juggernaut that is Moses. And even up to last week in verses 12 and 13 when we read that the word of God pierces and divides and discerns our hearts and thoughts and intentions. So we've been told that, that everything has been laid bare, everything is being expo- has been exposed to God, uh, uh, to whom we must uh, give an account. There is a very strong possibility that we recoil in fear. And it's like understandable whenever you package it up like that, it, we start to get a picture of who Jesus is and is like, how far away we are from him in terms of how magnificent he is and the 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 fear of judgment the fear uh, and apprehension of standing in his presence of, of an infinitely holy god that can like that can paralyze us so our author says don't think like that don't be afraid You have to remember that Jesus is your high priest. He is the Son of God who's passed through the heavens and He has taken His seat at the right hand of God and He is there to intercede on your behalf. He is your advocate, He's your your defense attorney, He's your eternal friend. That's our gospel reality. Uh, You may or may not have grown up in a a church or faith tradition um, that has priests. Uh, or bishops or archbishops or, or any of that. But maybe let's just take a moment to remember who the letter is written to. It's written to, uh, to Christians who had converted from Judaism. They were living far from Jerusalem and likely being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And under that persecution felt the temptation to withdraw, the temptation um, to, to go back to what they knew, which, which for, for these people, having grown up in Israel, having grown up in the Levitical system, the, the system of offerings on priests, uh, there's a safety in that. Do you know what I mean? Like whenever we're tempted, you want to withdraw to something that you know, something you're comfortable with. Maybe in a sense of nostalgia for what they, they knew Jerusalem to be like. And the writer knows this, and so he, based on the reality, tells them that Jesus is your great high priest. You don't need to worry about Jerusalem. Jesus is your high priest. Based on that reality, he gives an exhortation. First encouragement we see here at the second half of verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. So because Jesus is our high priest, and again, I'm sorry we don't have time to get into all the details of what that priest is and what he does. We just need to know for now, the priest is the mediator. He's the person who stood between the people of God and God himself. He represented the people to God and God to the people. That was what a priest is. So because Jesus is our great high priest, we have all the more reason to hold firmly our confession of faith in him. So in, in chapter 3, in verses 6 and 14, uh, we've already encountered this appeal, like an urgent appeal. Uh, we read of um, holding fast our confidence, firm, t- firm to the ends. Uh, in other words, don't despair in your faith. Don't give up hope. Don't let go. The word uh, translated, it's like g- grasp hold of, like firmly. It's not like a gentle, like, oh, let's just see if it falls on my hand or not. It's a firm grip. And we don't abandon that confidence. Why? Because he is our high priest. Um, maybe like a, a quick explainer on that word confession. Uh, we may just associate the word confession with admitting something bad. Or if your translation says uh, this faith we profess, you might think of just your initial commitment to Christ. But as we see throughout the text, uh, we need to have a bigger view of, that, of this idea of confession. Our confession is this continual commitment to christ it's this life of confession yes we have confessed jesus to be lord but that confession then bleeds out into every area of our life this confession is this ongoing lifestyle of commitment so that's the first we have a first gospel reality we have a great high priest in jesus the son of gods and on that gospel reality we have our exhortation uh, hold fast Then in verse 15, the writer picks up again, elaborating on that first gospel reality and starting to build in a basis for the second. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Uh, In speaking of Jesus as our high priest, it, it almost sounds, and if you're not familiar with the language of priests and so on, then that's, that's okay. It can sound that, that Jesus is distant from us. He's indifferent maybe towards the needs and worries and fears of ordinary people like you and me. Things that are great don't usually relate to things that aren't great. But our author says, no, that's not the kind of priest we have. Let me tell you what he's like, says our author, and why you can trust him. Why he can be counted on to understand your deepest struggles and your deepest pain, having been tempted just like you and me. He can sympathise with us in our struggles. He knows what you're feeling and he knows what you're facing. A few verses later in the chapter five, we start to get a hint um, again of what the priesthood in the Old Testament did. So, the, the, the high priests uh, in the Old Testament. They gave offerings on behalf of the people of God, but they themselves were sinners. So they had to give offerings on behalf of themselves, first of all, before they could give offerings on behalf of the people of God. But that's not Jesus. Jesus was tempted just like us, and he can sympathize with our weaknesses, but he never yielded to temptation. Uh, we saw the same truth in a couple of chapters ago in Hebrews 2 and verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Excuse me. That might leave you with a question. Doesn't the fact that Jesus didn't sin mean that he can't truly connect with us? How, how could he possibly know? C.S. Lewis. Heard someone voice this objection, uh, they voiced it in this way. If Jesus never sinned, then he doesn't know what temptation is like. He lived a sheltered life. He's out of touch with how strong temptation can be. In response to that question, C.S. Lewis said this. I think I've got it on the screen. It's pretty wordy. A silly idea is current, Uh, uh, there's an idea, a silly idea that's going around in fancy language. Uh, There's a silly idea going around that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. It's like standing, if temptation is like standing outside against a strong wind, you and I give up after like a minute because we get bored of standing against a strong wind. Jesus is the one who stands in the, in the face of the wind the entire time. That's who our high priest is. Now, you can read that and think, yeah, but Jesus didn't get the same temptations I did. Okay, yes, there's a difference between the expressions of sin and the essence of sin. We'll admit that, definitely. Expressions change over time. Jesus wasn't tempted to pull out a gun and shoot someone in cold blood. He wasn't tempted to cheat on his income taxes. He wasn't tempted to watch porn on the internet. He wasn't tempted to do any of these things. Those are unique expressions to our time. But the essence of sin hasn't changed, right? Jesus was tempted with unrighteous anger. He was tempted with anger, with with greed, with lust and hatred, and every other sinful temptation that we face. And he faced them all without yielding. Because of that, he, he knows the battle each of us faces. He doesn't roll his eyes at us, he doesn't shrug his shoulders. He's not indifferent or uh, in ignorance of what we're enduring. That's our second gospel reality that we have a great high priest who knows our weaknesses. He's been tempted like we have been tempted, but he did not sin. And so on the basis of that, we get the crucial, this crucial exhortation, this encouragement in verse 16. Excuse me. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The word then maybe isn't the most helpful. Uh, think maybe therefore. And again, it is, it is because it is therefore that we have a high priest who knows what we face and feel in our battle with temptation that we therefore must draw near to the throne of grace when we're in a mess and need help. Today, we are only looking at the second of these two exhortations Uh, the one we find in verse 16. We're not ignoring the first. The fact is that most of Hebrews 5 to 10 is an explanation in great detail of what's said in 13, 14, and 15. Uh, So we'll come back to that another time. Trust me. For now, I want us to consider uh, this remarkable invitation that we see in verse 16. I want us to consider it by way, framing it through a bunch of questions, okay? I find this helpful. Hopefully, uh, you will too. So, let us draw near to the throne of grace. The first question, pretty obvious, pretty easy. Where do we go? We go to the throne of grace. Uh, I don't know, I I can guess what comes to your mind whenever you envision a throne, a king, a sovereign ruler, uh, some sort of sense of someone ruling things, someone in charge. And God is that He is uh, eternal monarch, eternal king, emperor. Like all of the language we have to use to describe the most high things, God is that. And sometimes whenever we reflect on that, we can fall into the temptation of thinking that that, that a throne room is just too good. Like that's just too good. There's no way that we get that. Maybe we convince ourselves that we are coming to some sort of cosmic welfare agency for a meager handout or to the back door maybe at best to get like the leftovers to get the scraps off the table that's not what the author says when we need grace for our souls we're coming to the throne of the king of kings we can be intimidated uh, by this idea of the throne the regal atmosphere, the power and dignity associated with one who sits on the throne, I can put hesitation in anyone's hearts. That is until we see it's a throne of grace. See, you see, our author could have said, rightfully could have said it's a throne of God, a throne of heaven. And it is those things, but make no mistake about what the author says here. It's, it's, it's a throne that we, that we come to But it's grace that waits us there. It's grace that sits enthroned. It's not a throne of law or of criticism or of judgment, but of grace. And this throne exists to dispense grace to those who seek it out. Its purposes are gracious. The utterances spoken there are gracious. The answers to prayer received there are all of grace. And you see, this being a throne of grace means that our prayers are always Always heard. Even though they might be empty and frivolous to us, maybe they're poorly constructed. Maybe you don't know how to pray very well. You don't feel like you speak well. Uh, You don't know how to say things in the right way. But God hears us. If this was a throne of grammatical precision, you might be in trouble. But it's not, it's a throne of grace. God doesn't care for your stately etiquette, He doesn't care for courtly manners. The, those who do like, might be quick to judge you for one social faux pas, one mistake, you're done. That's your chance gone. God only asks for humility and for desperation in those who petition him. Come, he says, come to find grace. Come falteringly, come failingly, but by all means, come frequently. What if, what if, the, unbelie- what if the, the believer, sorry, is able, like can't even put words to what he wants? Well, because this is a, a throne of grace, God reads your desires without your words. Uh, my two kids, when they were a bit younger than they are today, uh, they struggled to articulate what they wanted almost all the time. And when they did, when they came to me and like just whined like, or whatever, like they asked for stuff and they didn't have the right words, like I didn't make fun of them. Just laugh at them. <laughs> Morons with your pitiful words. Like that's not what a, fa- a good father does. I would help them in any way they could. And this is what God does. He helps us. He even suggests the very words that we long to honor. And will our heavenly father do anything less? Spurgeon puts it in this way. He says, God will put the desires and put the expression of those desires into your spirit by his grace. He will direct your desires to the things which you ought to seek for. He will teach you your wants, though as yet you don't know them. He will suggest to you his promises that you may be able to plead them. He will be, in fact, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end of your prayer, just as he is to your salvation. For as salvation is from first to last of grace, so the sinner's approach to the throne of grace is uh, is of grace from first to last. Grace isn't just the thing that you get whenever you first become a Christian. It's It's something that sustains us from that point until the time that you get to meet Jesus face to face. Because, maybe we'll touch on that a bit more in a minute, but because this is a throne of grace, nothing is required of you. You, you, Your ticket to this throne is not based on anything you've done. It's based on desperation. He doesn't want sacrifices or good gifts or good intentions. He wants your helplessness. Why? In order that the sufficiency of his grace might be made known, might be magnified this is a throne for the spiritually bankrupt to come and find the wealth of God's energizing presence. Again, Spurgeon says, this isn't a throne which supports itself by the taxation of its subjects, but a throne which glorifies itself by streaming forth like a fountain with floods of good things. Do we understand what the throne of grace is? Do we have, is our vision of God one of a stingy God's? He withholds from us. That's where we are to come, a throne room of grace. Second question I asked in this text, how often should we come? The verb translated, let us draw near, conveys the sense of an approach that never ends. It is to be daily, hourly, even, and if you're like me, even more than that. We are constantly to come near to God. There is never a time when it's inappropriate. There's never a time when he's not available to you. There's never a circumstance that makes approaching the throne a bad idea. And again, if we think about uh, who this letter is written to, uh, the, the, this notion would have been entirely foreign, bonkers. They Remember, they've been steeped in the, in the rituals of this old covenant in the levitical system and in that system in that process the only single person in the people of god that got to be in the presence of god was the high priest one person and in his case he could only draw near to god on one day of the year one person on one day of the year the day of atonement so although this priest this high priest represented the people the people were still locked out of god's presence Their approach was forbidden. How much does that contrast with what we read here? We're we're not just invited, we're commanded to come always at every point of need. So how should we approach God then? Our author answers this question with one word, confidence. Confidence in yourself? No, no, no. Confidence in God. The confidence that comes from knowing we have a great high priest who knows our thoughts, our hurts, our worst fears, our deepest desires. But I want to suggest that this confidence, it's not only grounded in what God has done, but in who we are as a result of what God has done. Jesus has passed through the heavens. He has ascended to the Father, into the throne room. And in being in that place, and being in the throne room presently, right now. And because you are in Christ and Christ is in you, we are actually in that place. Does that make sense? So Christ is perpetually at the Father's right hand in the throne room and we are also perpetually in the throne room because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And Jesus in that place is interceding for us at that very moment. Whenever I was thinking on these things and reflecting on them and thinking about this idea of how far in a throne room is to me and how much it doesn't seem like I have access to that, I remembered a Christmas present I was given a few years ago. It was a collection of photos from President Barack Obama's time in office. And there are hundreds of photos of him with powerful people in powerful rooms making decisions that affect the entire world. But every now and then you come across a photo of him with his kids. I think I've got one on screen. Uh, That's his daughter just about to sneak up and jump. There's a series of photos where she jumps out and scares him. He doesn't actually look that pleased in the the next few photos, to be fair. There are lots of other photos that show his love and admiration for his kids. I thought that just kind of shows the... I think it shows it in a really special way. And then, just as I was looking for it online, because I've got it in a book and I couldn't figure out how to get it on to the screen, find a photo of JFK with his own son playing with toys in the desk of the Oval Office. I hope. The, I think the kid was there by his choice. I don't think the kid was put there. Like I don't think it's not. I don't think it's weird in that way. But in that same way, how do you view your access to this throne room? Do you feel locked out of God's presence? The truth is more closer to what these pictures present than that. That we are kids, we are children bought by Christ. And because of that, we have access to the highest place. The psalmist said that, and just as we think about these things and think about the fact that Jesus is in that place and interceding for us and and praying for us for, for all of our needs, Reflecting on Psalm 147, the psalmist says of God that he gives beasts, he gives to the beasts their food, and to the young ravens that cry. Which then makes you wonder is that what Jesus had in mind whenever he said in Luke chapter 12, Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Do you understand that you're a child of God? Uh, the raven is a, is just a a bird, nothing special about it. And I'm going to be honest. I'm sorry if there's any raven apologists out there, but a death of a raven isn't like doesn't mean that much. We, on the other hand, are souls, and uh, <laughs> no raven, as far as I know, uh, will ever be redeemed or resurrected. How then could God hear its cry, and he does, but turn a deaf ear to yours? No raven was ever formed in the image of God. If you heard the cry of a hungry raven raven, at the same time as you heard a cry of, an, of a baby, which would you go to first? You, you go to the baby, right? It's a silly question, but, but I think we have to understand that if we have the good sense to like, attend to a crying baby over a dying bird, the baby who bears a divine image, how will God do any less? And again, I'm sorry, I'm really going to dig into this raven analogy. I'm sorry if you're not a fan of them. But Jesus, he mentions ravens. He doesn't like, it's not a hawk or like a falcon or an eagle or like a cool looking bird, I don't know even like a nice pretty one, like a robin or something. Do you know what I mean? It's not a bird of beauty. It's lowly and seemingly useless. But that's what he appeals. That's his appeal. So if God would happily provide for the needs of an insignificant bird, will he not happily, generously provide for yours? So we come to the throne room with confidence. I'm I'm telling you, sorry, I'm sticking with ravens a bit more. Sorry, just deal with it. Uh, consider the cry of a raven okay It, it speaks no words it articulates no phrases it can't come up with any fancy arguments its cry is just instinct the raven makes no appeal to grace it knows nothing of our high priest jesus but in fact jesus didn't die for a single raven yet the father graciously cares for their needs how much more then shall he graciously care for yours Nowhere are ravens commanded to cry to God, yet we are repeatedly exhorted to do so. We have a divine warrant to come to this gracious throne. Ravens aren't told to go there, but they don't go away empty-handed. But you and I are invited guests, like invited to the throne room. So why then would the one who has issued the invitation turn around and deny us? The cry of a raven is at best an unthinking animal. Ours is a cry of the precious Holy Spirit within us. In Romans eight, twenty-six it says this likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So whenever insignificant birds cry, they they do so alone. But when we cry, we cry jointly with our heavenly intercessor, the Lord Jesus. If the annoying chatterings of a single bird are heard by God, how much more are ours? Whenever we pray with a biblical plea, Father, do it for Jesus' sake. I hope I've made my case. You can come with confidence to the throne room. The last question we will ask ourselves here: What would you expect to find at a throne of grace? Well, obviously, grace. But more than that, we find mercy too. Yeah. It's it's one thing to find sympathy. Uh, how often are you like? Do you get like you complain to somebody? You know, you just want to be heard. You just want to be sympathized with. It's one thing to find sympathy and understanding, uh, but it's. We need more than that. We need power. We need, we need some sort of sustaining strength. So the purpose of this prayer, of, of coming to the throne room and, and praying, isn't primarily that we might feel better or like feel like we are heard and understood, but that we might get grace. It helps us in a moment of need. When we come boldly and confidently to the throne of grace, God doesn't just feel sorry for us. His, his response isn't, lols, look at the state of you. We don't have an indifferent God. He doesn't just shrug or ignore us. If, if, if he did, if, if that was God's response to, you, to us, the author couldn't possibly have described this as a throne of grace. He doesn't, God doesn't mock us. He doesn't ridicule us. He doesn't compare us to other Christians, which I'm convinced we all do, if only you were like that guy who prays more. If only you were like that girl who pray, you know, prays all the time. That's not what God does. What is this grace that we, get to, that we get when we come to the throne of God? Well, it's a sort of grace. That, it's not the sort of grace that just tells us what to do. It's a grace that energizes us. It, it empowers us to do what God has told us to do so grace doesn't just point us in the direction of holiness it, it infuses us with power that we might actually walk in that way grace is more than than words of than words of exhortation or or cheers of encouragement from the sideline grace is it's it's more than reasons to obey or or, or arguments to persevere grace itself is powerful it is an energizing work within us. Grace is God at work in us to change us. Grace changes how we think. It gives, us, it gives plausibility to, to, and sense to ideas that we believed maybe to be false one time. Grace changes how we feel. It brings joy in Jesus. It brings revulsion for sin. Grace changes how we choose. It creates new desires, deeper desires for what we once found unappealing. Grace changes how we act, it, 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 it equips us, it energizes us, energizes the soul to do what we've failed to do many times before. If we are to have hope for holiness, we must have heart-changing, mind-changing, will-changing work of divine grace that is sovereignly bestowed when heart-weak, mind-weak, and will-weak people ask for it from the only place that it can be found which is the throne of grace. As we draw to close, I want us to reflect on a passage in Philippians in chapter 2 from 12 to 13. I think it's on the screen. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." Hopefully this communicates what I'm trying to get across. Paul speaks of a God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If we are to resist temptation, if we're to say no to sin, if we want to walk in purity and integrity, God must be at work in us when Paul says that God works in us so that we might will what is right, he has in mind a sense of um, resolve on our part. There's some sort of sense of us wanting that on our part. So God energizes our, our minds, our hearts to want to work for his will. This is grace. It's the Holy Spirit creating in us a desire and a love and an inclination to embrace whatever pleases the Father. Do you see what I mean about grace not being just this thing that, you, that, like, that makes you a Christian in like one time? It's this ongoing, energizing uh, work of the Holy Spirit in us. This, this is the grace that constitutes the help that God so freely supplies in response to the humble prayer of those who rely on him for holiness. So God helps by imparting to our souls a new taste for spiritual things to be able to savor Jesus above all things. He helps us by infusing our hearts with a new disposition, a new way of thinking, a a passion for the joy of enjoying him. This help itself is grace. And without it, without this grace, without that, we're, we're hopelessly resigned to living according to how we want, to the impulses of the flesh that will inevitably lead us into sin. If we really want to believe that Jesus is better, if we want to enjoy the generous gifts he gives, our hearts have to be fed with grace. If we are to see him with surpassing excellency and for that reason say no to the passing pleasures of sin, our hearts must be fed with grace. And if we are to be fed with grace, we have to boldly come to the throne and that it's seated mindful that this throne is ready to pour out. If you and I are to find answers to our questions and strength to face today, patience to endure what comes next week and part overcome any temptation that comes our way, we have to come to the throne of grace and we don't bring anything other than our need of Christ. We don't come with past promises sorry, promises or past triumphs. We don't come with money or other form of bribery like you can bribe God. Why even try what we do? We don't come with regrets. We come empty and needy with open hand and an open heart to allow God fill us with grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. As we wrap up, just Maybe now is a good moment to recognize that you're needy. Calling someone needy isn't like a nice thing. It's usually a bit of an insult, isn't it? We are needy. You're needy. You have weaknesses and you know them. You have fears. But we have a priest who knows them and is inviting us to come to himself to dispense grace, to dispense mercy. Can I invite you to stand as Marie and Adam come up to lead us in song? Uh, whenever something I sometimes I find sitting listening to because I'm mostly sitting down listening to the word being preached rather than up here. Um, what I, how I find the Spirit works in my life is sometimes things come to mind as uh, we're listening to what's being spoken. Maybe you'll know straight away what your fears are, what your weaknesses are, what are you worried about? Uh, so maybe the Spirit is reminding you of something, and this is an opportunity to, to come again to the throne of grace. I would love to be able to break bread and share wine with you as we uh, are, are meant to do in normal seasons. I can't do that now. Uh, but uh, the Holy Spirit is powerful enough to be able to mediate um, even in this season. Let me pray for us as we resolve to draw near. Father, it is uh, incredibly powerful to think that right now uh, you are simultaneously thinking uh, about every thought, every, you know, every thought, every fear, every doubt, every concern of every individual in this room. It is overwhelming to be aware of the fact that your son Jesus is standing beside you praying for us right now and in every moment. What a glorious truth, Lord. Holy Spirit, teach us, remind us of that deep in our hearts. Father, I ask that whatever the needs uh, came in on the hearts of the people in this room and in in the living rooms at home, whatever burdens are on their backs, whatever fears are in their minds, whatever doubts about tomorrow, whatever regrets about yesterday, may they find grace. Holy Spirit, be close to them. Thank you, Lord, that we do find grace and mercy. We thank you that when we come to you, you don't rebuke us. You don't beat us down. You don't rake us over the coals of our failures, but you give us grace to help in a time of need. Come, Lord, dispense more grace to us for our joy, for your glory, for the sake of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.